This is the River Radius, a cultural nexus of rivers, people, and boats. I am your host, Sam Carter. Welcome. I spent four hours trying to explain to my grandma what wild and scenic legislation meant, and she said, okay, cool. She said, mijo, can, can, can my kids and my grandkids and my great-grandkids, can they still go to the Gila? And I said, yeah. She said, will it change? And I said, well, here's the problem. The world is changing. People want water. They want access to all of these things. So if we don't do something to fix it now or to prevent those things from happening in the long run, my kids, my your grandkids, your great-grandkids, they're not going to have those experiences. She's like, I really like making tacos there on the river at the grapevine. This episode comes to you from the Gila, from stories and lives and lineages from this century and last. This month, November of 2021, wild and scenic legislation was introduced in the United States Senate to establish over 400 miles of the Gila, San Francisco, and East Membrace rivers as wild and scenic. What is the Gila? It is an uplift of mountains in southwest New Mexico. There are the Gila Mountains and the Gila River. And in those mountains are also the San Francisco River and the Membrace River. In my perception of wild and scenic rivers, I've always thought of places with big water and great boating potential. The rivers being considered in this legislation are shallow and narrow, and a person might do some small boat boating for a short season. But the story of this wild and scenic effort is about human relationships with a riverscape, a riverscape that is in a sky island of riparian and vibrant desert mountain habitat for wildlife and the humans in the region. This is a landscape that has as much biodiversity as an ocean archipelago. This past October, I traveled to southern New Mexico to attend a small conference about this wild and scenic legislation for the Gila. I also went into the Gila to see the mountains to meet this river. In preparation for this conference and interviews, I crafted up a short storyline for this episode. The people I met at the conference changed my perspective on what this episode would express. Did I meet people who boat the Gila? A few, enough to count on one hand. I did meet many people who go to the Gila to be with family, to heal, to soften their way, to camp and hunt and fish, to slow down, to have fresh air, to commune with the landscape that has offered these same aspects for generations and centuries. In today's episode, you will hear about this Gila wild and scenic legislation from six different voices to include folks who have been at the Gila their entire lives, folks whose family have been with the Gila for 15 generations, and from the United States Senator of New Mexico who introduced this legislation. We will begin with a physical view of the Gila. Early on the last day of the conference, folks were gathering in a parking lot at the edge of town near the road that travels into the Gila to go explore various areas of the anticipated wild and scenic legislation. Before the participants arrived, I met with Nathan Newcomer to learn about the land and the riverscapes of the Gila. My name is Nathan Newcomer. I'm the Gila grassroots organizer with New Mexico Wilderness Alliance based in Silver City, New Mexico. We are in a place called the Gila region and the Gila is situated in what's called the Mogollon Rim. It's an area where there's a confluence of five different ecosystems that all converge together to make the landscape truly unique because you've got the Chihuahuan Desert coming up from the southwest, you've also got portions of the Sonoran Desert, you've got the Colorado Plateau, you've got the Mogollon Rim. You can find over 250 species of migratory songbirds in the Gila region. And so when you have water with rivers in the desert, Obviously, you're going to see a lot of that activity uh, of wildlife in those riparian corridors. So they're just critical uh, to the lifeblood of the entire area, quite frankly. The elevations range between here in Silver City, where I live, it's about 6,000 feet in elevation. uh, But you can go up into the mountains and get up to over 10,000 feet. Uh, The canyons uh, that are found in the Gila Wilderness in particular, which is America's first wilderness area, designated in 1924, is the headwaters of the Gila River. They're serpentine canyons that twist and you know, meander throughout many, many, many miles. The Gila River itself in the wilderness runs 40 miles of undisturbed free flow river. Uh, you'll find rock hoodoos, which are these spires. Think of like organ pipes, basically. It looks like melted wax in places, pocketed caves, a lot of cultural sites, cliff dwellings, 
granaries, petroglyphs, pictographs, uh, a lot of deep cultural history here in the Gila region. There are three distinct cultures that include the Mogion people, then followed by the Membres culture, and then of course the Apaches. We just saw recently uh, at White Sands Missile Range, they found human footprints that date back to around 22,000 years ago. It's pretty striking to see that this landscape has been used by indigenous cultures for millennia, essentially. And, and now we as uh, conservationists in the conservation community feel it's our duty to continue to preserve the landscape as best as we can because it's such a unique treasure uh, for, quite frankly, the entire world. Are, are these mountains um, catching snow in the winter? Where does the water come from? They are from? primarily snow-fed, yes, but with obviously with climate change occurring, that's having huge impacts. Um, normally, people would float the river in early spring, but now folks are trying to float it probably late winter because the snow melt is, is happening quite sooner uh, than normal. Uh, and we're also seeing uh, increases, sometimes increases in monsoonal moisture, which is like thunderstorms uh, during the fall. Uh, and that can have somewhat good and bad effects because if you get these large rain events, then you have scouring floods that can come through and, and tear up the landscape when as it, what it should be doing is naturally you know, flowing at moderate levels. And so you could have a low river one, at one day and then you know, a couple months later it's flooding basically. Uh, so it's a very unique dynamic in the, in the, desert south, in the arid desert southwest. And when you say boating, um, like the volume is, what's, what kind of volumes are you looking at on this river? In terms of cubic feet per second? Um, well, it, it varies, obviously, because we are in the middle of the desert. Um, but I've floated the Gila River in a kayak, an inflatable kayak, uh, at 1,000 CFS and 800 CFS. But then I've also seen it spike uh, to 20,000 CFS. Wow. Um, that was a massive rain event when that occurred. Uh, but typical flow uh, is probably going to be around 250, 250 CFS uh, during sort of like, you know, the summertime, or it could get lower than that even in the summertime. Depends on, on the rains, honestly. So just to be clear, a, a thousand CFS is kind of, I don't want to say high water, but that's, that's, that's kind of the upper end of your average. Yeah. yeah. Okay. A thousand CFS is, is going to get your adrenaline going. Okay. You know, you're going to be in your, in your kayak and you're going to be like, okay, uh, there's certain sections in the, especially in the wilderness run in the Gila wilderness. It's just rapid after rapid, after rapid, after rapid. It's whitewater. I mean, it, it's, it's, you wouldn't think it, but when you get out there and, it, and you're on that high water, yeah, it's it's pretty pretty gnarly, but also exhilarating at the same time. If you go hiking in the wilderness along the river uh, when it's not high water, uh, you will see flood debris like stuck up in trees, like you know sycamore trees, twenty feet high. So it gives you a sense of like how how truly wild uh, this river really is. Today's episode of the River Radius is sponsored on behalf of American Rivers. Here is Mike Feebig, director of American Rivers Southwest River Protection Program. Hi, I'm Mike Feebig with American Rivers. I direct our river protection program for the Southwest U.S. We started the Southwest River Protection Program a little over two years ago to protect the most culturally and ecologically important rivers, the rivers that feed our cities and towns. They support our wildlife. They support the two largest river ecosystems, the Colorado and the Rio Grande system. We've been working with a local coalition on the Gila River for the past seven plus years to get it designated as wild and scenic. The Wild and Scenic Rivers Act is the nation's highest form of river protection. In fact, it's one of the highest forms of river protection worldwide. It's inspired dozens of similar initiatives across the globe. The Greater Gila River System is a perfect candidate for wild and scenic designation. It comes from our nation's first wilderness area, it is the largest collection of free-flowing rivers left in the southwest U.S. And it's been used by people since time immemorial. The Greater Gila System has a long history of use by humans. This system has been cherished and used and preserved for all of that time. Descendants of all of these generations of people are still there, still using this land, still getting out on the river, still cherishing that river system. You can find more information about American Rivers at AmericanRivers.org. What I learned about the Gila 
is that it is all of the powerful landscape characteristics that Nathan just described, and that it is also a place for humans to commune with the land and with each other. This became the thread of my interviews and conversations, how humans engage with the land and the river. It was about family and gathering with each other and with the Gila. Here we explore this perspective with a mother and daughter, two lifelong members of Silver City, New Mexico, explaining the Gila and how people use the Gila. First of all, it's a national forest. It's an area that's just a couple of miles away from Silver City. So uh, a lot of people go out there on the weekends or, you know, in the evening when they need to get away from people and spend some time in the wilderness. It's also a river. And it's it's probably the most central part of our community. It's, it's the thing that binds us all together. And the one thing we can all agree on is that it's important to us. Can you all tell me your names? And can you tell me the, the formal way and then I guess maybe the more casual way to describe your relationship as well, please? Guadalupe Cano. I'm Patricia Cano. Well, she's my mom. She's also my sidekick. Everybody knows we, we're a pair in town. And can each of you... Tell me a little bit about your life so we can get to know you a little bit. Like I said, I'm Mother Lupegano. Um, I've lived in Silver City my whole life. I'm involved in politics. I'm a town counselor. And um, I'm involved with both Outdoor New Mexico, which is the group that works on outdoor economics in New Mexico. And I'm also involved with New Mexico Wild, which is how I ended up a speaker at the conference about the Gila River. Yes, I'm a retired professor of Spanish and Chicano studies, and uh, I'm very active in the community. I like to organize events. I like to go to events. You know, I remember the first time that we talked that that we talked about the idea that the Gila refers to kind of this mountain area, this wild area, and also this river. Tell tell me more about this idea that it that it binds you as a community together. What what do you mean by that? I think it doesn't matter what somebody's experience is as far as, you know, like socioeconomics or ethnicity or whatever, every single person here has a story about the river. Um, They have something that connects them to being outdoors in the wilderness. And, and in most cases, it's something that makes their family stronger because they out go out there together. And it's, you know, even the transplants of people that come here, a lot of them come here just because of the, the Gila. So it's the one thing we all share. Can you can you tell me more about those cultural reasons that uh, the landscape is important? I think the Gila is is helpful for healing. I, I know that uh, there's a lot of well, the Native American community uses the forest. You know, they they go out there and they they have their their rituals and the things that they do that that bring them closer to the land. I think the same thing is true of the Hispanic community. New Mexico is a place that expresses its layers of modern and deep human history in the lineages of humans who are alive today and know that history as a recent past. Here, people and families can still directly trace their lineages to when indigenous cultures were dominant on the landscape, when Spain ruled the land, when Mexico ruled the land, and now today, people who are United States citizens. Colonial engagement with the lands and people of New Mexico began about 500 years ago. Before that colonial period, there were humans on the landscapes deeply engaged with their lives, indigenous people, communities well-connected to a vast network of humans across what is now New Mexico and all of the surrounding modern states and across the modern international border with Mexico. Thousands of years of indigenous sovereignty. And today, some of these people are still in the region, and some live elsewhere on reservations that emerged during the growth and manifest destiny of the United States. And yet, these people who may or may not live near the Gila hold a connection in their lineage to this land and riverscape. At the conference, I recorded a panel that talked about the human connections to the landscape, to the Gila. On that panel was a man named Michael Darrow. Michael is a member, trustee, and tribal historian of the Fort Sill Apache that are located now in Oklahoma. Here, Michael talks about how his Apache family and ancestors were at the Gila and throughout the region. When people start referring to our tribe, they seem to not use our terminology. They use terminology based on who the leader happened to be or where the group was located. So different names have been applied. Membrace Apaches or Mugion Apaches or Warm Springs Apaches or Chiricahua Apaches. All of those are different locations of where our people used to be. However, as I 
I said, our people are referred to also as the Gila Apaches, and that territory was very special for our, our people. But within our tribe, even though culturally, historically, socially, we were all cohesive as a single tribe, politically, we consisted of four, uh, four or more very, very politically independent groups, just like like that we had our different bands and those were separate governments even though they were all one single tribe. We, If anybody asked us who we were, we would identify ourselves by which band we were. And so some of the terms in English that were applied were the Warm Springs Apache, who were over by Ojo Caliente, over in the Black Range in that area. There was the Bedanko Band, which was over along the Magellan and San Francisco River area. There were the Chocone, who were farther south and their territory was west of here over into Arizona and down to northern Mexico and then they were the, they were the Netanyi who were mostly down in Mexico. But it was all one tribe. They moved around a lot but this was our home and it was very special to each of them that they maintained their home. In this segment with Michael on the panel, he talks about the layers of colonial and territorial interests from Spain and the United States and how those interests impacted the Apache's ability to remain in the region and with the Gila. When Michael was covering these topics, he admittedly spoke to the shortened version of the history covering many decades in just a few minutes because of constraints of an hour-long panel. The Spanish came along and they claimed everything. They said, oh, well, no, you're not allowed to trade anymore. If you want anything, you have to ask us. And if you want something that this other group has, you have to ask us for it. And that severely threw a wrench in the economy. And besides besides the slave raids and taking people out to work in the mines and disappearing a lot of people. But it seems the United States came along and they had a boundary commission. The Apache said, well, what are you doing here? And said, well, we're marking a boundary. Everything north of there belongs to the United States and everything south belongs to Mexico. Mm-hmm. I said, well, we've been here forever. We don't remember giving this land to you. This is our land. You can't divide it up like that. So, oh, well, don't worry about us. We're just passing through. We'll be gone in a little while. And so they set up camp there for several months and then somebody discovered gold. Our tribe negotiated a treaty with the United States, and it got approved in 1852. An official approved by Congress treaty, wherein we didn't turn over a single spoonful of dirt to the United States. We gave them the authority to build forts, to build trading posts, and to cross our territory. But somehow, it seems that people from the United States came in, and they started building ranches, and farms, and mines, and, and roads, and towns, and all these things that we never gave permission for. All of these things, they should have been done under our authority, because it was our land. You don't go in and start building things on somebody else's land, of course, unless they're natives. In 1886, when our tribe was shipped off as prisoners of war, that was when the United States took our land away from us. According to the Court of Claims, that was the official date. So anything that was established in our territory before that time was illegally established. An important piece of clarity here. In Michael's explanation of Apache and United States history as it relates to the Gila, there is coverage of a treaty that was in some aspects disregarded. This wild and scenic legislation is not looking to make amends for that portion of history. Frankly, they are not connected in rule or action. I, as the host and producer, am making the choice to include Michael's voice and message about the land and this history because it helps me, and I believe you all, as the listeners, to understand the deep connection between these people and a river that is being considered for stronger protections, for wild and scenic protections. This legislation is not changing the ownership of the land, nor taking any lands or waters from anyone. It simply prevents damages in the future from coming to these places, and in that way, helps to preserve a place for all folks to experience and enjoy this place over time, to include members of the Apache and all indigenous communities. My grandfather was born over by the Ojo Caliente Warm Springs Reservation, and so my grandfather, he and his mother, were marched up to San Carlos on some other tribe's reservation, and unpleasantness and friction developed. They tried several times to escape, and they kept trying to get back to their old home. You hear about all these other Apache wars. It was not because Apaches are mean, vicious people and like to fight. It's because they were trying to get back to their own home. 
and they were not allowed, the United States wouldn't allow them to do that. So there's connections all through this area for our tribe, uh, even specifically for our family. We took my grandmother when she was in probably in her 70s or something out to the Warm Springs area and we drove through on the north side of the Healer wilderness so that she could see these areas because she had been born as a prisoner of war of the United States in 1886 to Florida and then to Alabama and then to Fort Sill in Oklahoma and kept as prisoners of war for 28 years. Uh, upon being released, they said, well, you can either join the Mescalero Apaches on the Mescalero Reservation. And our people didn't want to do that. They said, that's not our home territory. We want to be moved to our home territory. Give us Ojo Caliente there. They said, no, we're not going to do that. We said, we don't want to be moved on any reservation that belongs to somebody else. That's always caused problems. And so they said, well, if you're not going to move to Mescalero, then all you get are allotments in Oklahoma. And so the tribe split in 1913. A large portion became Mescalero Apaches. They joined that tribe and have been there ever since. The rest of us got put on scattered allotments of farmland in Oklahoma, which is why we're called Fort Apaches, why we're connected with Oklahoma. But my grandmother, who was born as a prisoner of war in Alabama, grew up as a prisoner of war at Fort Sill, and her first two children, as a prisoner of war of the United States, I was moved to an allotment. She raised her children there. She had never been out to the Warm Springs, but she'd heard her husband, my grandfather, tell about the area where he was born and where he, where he remembered because he was a few years older than she was. So we were able to take her out there to visit. I'd come out here on visits with my mother. In our tribe, they've been away for so long. A lot of the information on the, the names of the different places, a lot of that information, the significance, the special sites, all of that information was not able to be transferred from generation to generation because you have to be able to take your children out there and, and show them to let them have that experience. My mother tried to make arrangements to get some land out near the Warm Springs area so she could be buried there. That didn't work out before she was buried, so she's buried in Oklahoma. The, the land still has a lot of meaning to it. Another member of the Gila community that I was able to talk with at the conference is Simone Sotelo III, also known as Simon. He and his family are multi-generational membranos who have been homesteading in the Gila region since the late 1700s. Simon has worked on the wild and scenic legislation and has helped to express the meaning of the legislation across cultural and generational thresholds. I'm Simon. I come from a very, very old homesteading family in the Ruiz Valley in southern New Mexico. And I think that's probably the thing I'm the most proud of. I know my people. I know where they come from. I know their roots. But I'm also an artist. That's my jam. I also work for a conservation organization, New Mexico Wild. I look at what my community and my people are going to be dealing with in the next 20 to 30 years. You know, rural communities are going to be suffering from climate change. Communities of color, at or below poverty level communities. And I wonder what that's going to look like for a place like Silver City. My family is from here. I live here. These are my people. This is my community. And what's going to happen to us when the shit hits the fan, so to speak? During the Creekside conversation Simon and I had, and over the course of the conference, I was hearing him express to me and to others that conservation was a modern concept that was needed as a tool to protect lands in the modern era, and that some of the root ideas of conservation were ways of life well before colonial forces came to the Gila and well before the methods of conservation had to be regulated on landscapes. When you think about New Mexico history, New Mexico history starts at like 1912. The reality is is there's people who've been here way before the United States were here. And, And then even on the Native American side of my family, you know, there's people who've been here way longer even before the Spanish people came along. And so, Part of the reason that I think this wild and scenic legislation is important, these are people who are utilizing the river on a day-to-day basis, and they weren't thinking about it in quote-unquote conservation terms, right? They were thinking about it like, hey, this is something that we like to do. We like to to hike, and we like to fish, and we like to enjoy the river in 
we know that the river is a very important part of our lives. And so I think in a lot of ways, conservation is a very anglicized kind of concept, but it doesn't mean that conservation didn't exist. It only, it only became prevalent or pronounced when anglers decided that this is what we needed to do, right? This is how we're going to protect these places, and this is how we're going to take care of them. When in reality, the peoples that were here long before colonization in the Southwest, these people were already doing those things. Maybe you have heard me talk in the past few episodes about my own recent acceptance that our collective path towards climate change is undeniable and that planning for that future is now more important than trying to reverse impacts. And yes, I still believe we should be trimming our collective impacts. I also believe acceptance and clever future-proofing of our landscape and lifeways is also paramount. And that is what I was hearing from Simon about this push to bring elders and family into the fold of supporting the wild and scenic legislation. The cultural acceptance and the cultural future-proofing blending with the future-proofing of rivers. And so when I go back to my mom and my dad and my grandparents and I tell them, hey, I want you to support this wild and scenic legislation, they're like, why? This is how our family has lived for the last 150, 175 years. And so the concept of conservation, we all have the same idea, whether you're Anglos from Albuquerque or your Mexicans from Mimbres, we have the same idea. We're just using different words. But this legislation is very important because we have to learn how to live in a modern, colonized, anglicized world. And so if we want to continue to irrigate our fields, if we want to continue to raise cattle, if we want to grow peach trees and, and apple trees, we have to adjust and we have to say, okay, we're going to support this legislation. Do I agree 100% with the way that it's written? No, but again, it's, it, it's words, it's a bunch of words for something that's already been happening. The interesting thing about the Gila is that prehistorically people were using it as a way to travel, to commute from one place to another. And then you have Spanish colonization and people started growing fruits and peaches. And actually it was the Spanish who introduced apples and peaches to, to the Mears Valley. And then, you know, you have the indigenous tribes and things like that. And, and unfortunately, whether you're Hispanic, Latino, Mexican, or you're indigenous, or you're dirt rich Anglo family, we have to kind of adjust to the idea that the only way that we're going to be able to protect what we have always done is by supporting a piece of legislation, right? And it's a piece of legislation that half, half of us will never see. Um, I've seen it. I worked on it. I know what it says. But the reality is, is that the words are different than the words that my parents and my grandparents are using. Um... And, 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 and so there's something that's lost in translation. And it makes me sad to think that we literally have to ask Congress to continue our way of life. Because if we don't get that designation, there's a possibility that that, that way of life will never exist again. As you heard earlier in this episode, today's sponsored organization is American Rivers. Here again, we hear from Mike Feebig. Hey, this is Mike Fiebig again, Director of River Protection for the Southwest U.S. with American Rivers. American Rivers believes in a future of clean water and healthy rivers for everyone, everywhere. Since 1973, we have protected wild rivers, restored damaged rivers, and conserved clean water for people and nature. With headquarters in Washington, D.C., and 300,000 supporters, members, and volunteers across the country, we're the most trusted and influential river conservation organization in the United States. Delivering solutions for a better future, because life needs rivers. Working to protect this Gila River system is a powerful coalition of groups. These include NGOs like American Rivers, also a number of other state and local groups, tribes, businesses, private landowners, ranchers, local politicians. You can find the full list at wildgilariver.org. The interesting thing about wild and scenic rivers and the reason that they're so hard to designate is that this is a national designation. This is a designation that has to pass 
the full house. It has to pass the full Senate. It has to be signed by the president. And as such, it becomes the nation's river. It becomes something that's cherished by all of us. In order to get there, we need lots of support. Your senators, your Congress people, they need to hear from you. There are great ways to get involved. You can check them out at the coalition that we're part of at wildhealerriver.org. We head back to the parking lot conversation with Nathan Newcomer to gain more details on this current wild and scenic legislation. Can you talk us, walk us through this, this wild and scenic legislation? How long have you been working on it? How long has it been worked on? And then what's happening right now? What's next? When might this get presented through the federal system? And, and, and how long before wild and scenic protections could actually be in place for this area? So the effort to protect the Gila River as wild and scenic began when the Wild and Scenic Rivers Act was first passed in Congress, the U.S. Federal Congress in 1968. Uh, there was a draft bill to designate the Gila River as wild and scenic, but unfortunately it did not go anywhere. There were subsequent efforts to do that throughout the following decades because there have been efforts to erect major dams and diversions on the Gila River for over 100 years, uh, including one proposal that would have created a 10-mile slack reservoir inside the Gila wilderness. It's been about a decade that I've been working on it here, and I think that we've gained a lot of momentum because we did get a bill introduced in the U.S. Senate in May of 2020, and here we are in uh, October of 2021, and our U.S. Senators, uh, Martin Heinrich and Benray Lujan, are working to reintroduce that same legislation this year. And the hope is, is that we will see that reintroduced sometime in the later parts of October of 2021. The effort really began with going out into these rivers, over 450 miles of rivers. It's not just the Gila River, it's the San Francisco River and all their major tributaries, and documenting their wild and scenic characteristics and those characteristics consist of are they free-flowing and do they possess one or more outstandingly remarkable value and the wild and scenic rivers act of 1968 explains what those values are it's scenery geology history cultural historical wildlife fish things of that nature and the gila has all of that in abundance it's everywhere and so we went out there in the field with volunteers and documented all of this great values and presented it in reports and narratives to our congressional delegation and said here's the data that we've collected on the ground here's let's walk through all the maps together let's start doing outreach with our communities going to the city of Bayard to the city of Silver City going to the Grant County Commission going to tribes going to business owners going to landowners and saying this is the proposal what do you think do you support this? And we built that grassroots support from the ground up to show that these communities wanted this to happen. And so that's why we had this conference here recently in Silver City to re-engage the local communities around this legislation since we've all been locked in our houses for a year and a half, essentially. Uh, So we're going to keep pushing and get this thing done because, you know, Aldo Leopold, who was the visionary that helped set aside the Gila wilderness in 1924, he, he understood that we needed to protect landscapes. However, what most people don't know <clears throat> is that the Wilderness Act has a loophole inside of it. The President of the United States has the authority to authorize major dams and diversions inside wilderness areas. Wild and Scenic Rivers Act prevents major dams and diversions. So if you have wilderness and wild and scenic working together, you're essentially protecting the landscape in perpetuity. Your hope is that this gets introduced. I heard you say October 2021. That's where we are. So in a few weeks that this gets introduced and that even by the end of the year, it might get voted on. No, I doubt that. Um, No, I, I, the wheels of Congress are very slow. So once the bill gets reintroduced, this bill would be heard before the Senate energy and natural resources committee. Then it has to get voted out of that committee. And then once it's voted out of that committee, then it has to go for a full vote before the U.S. Senate in Washington, D.C. So that's what we're looking at. And when's that going to happen? I couldn't tell you, but, you know, we'll keep we'll keep grinding it to 
to get there. Tell me a little bit more about this this idea that it's not just the Gila. Why not just do the main stem of the Gila? Why do all the other upper trips? Because the Gila is so large. Because it's the watershed. You're protecting the entire watershed. The two wilderness areas, the Gila Wilderness, the Outer Leopold Wilderness, are 750,000 acres in size. And you're talking about a national forest that's close to 3 million acres in size. And so such a large landscape requires such large protection because, you know, if, if you're only going to protect a portion of it, what's the point? It doesn't make any sense. You need to go, you need to go big. You need to go get it all and, and protect all of it. On November 2nd of this year, 2021, the Gila Wild and Scenic legislation was introduced in the United States Senate in Washington, D.C., by the two New Mexican senators, Senator Martin Heinrich and Senator Ben Ray Lujan. From what I understand, if this bill goes to a full Senate vote, that will happen sometime in 2022, before the end of the current congressional session. Wild and scenic legislation is a federal level of protection, and to gain this protection for rivers, there are two pathway options. One is through the U.S. House and Senate, and then to the President. The other comes through a state via its governor and then to the Secretary of the Interior. The Gila River is using the first method through the Senate and the House. The last guest to join this episode today is one of the two senators from New Mexico who introduced the Gila Wild and Scenic legislation. I was able to get on a call with United States Senator Martin Heinrich of New Mexico. Good morning, Sam. This is uh, Martin Heinrich. Martin, nice to have you with us today. Thanks for joining. You bet. All right, well, let's do this. I really appreciate you making the okay. time for this. Um, you know, I just, Absolutely. I, I traveled down to Silver City uh, about a month, maybe six weeks ago for their Gila River Wild and Scenic Conference. And I feel like you have a really important role in this. So I want to ask you some questions. Uh, let's start off. Can you tell me about your relationship with the Gila, what you know of it, how you know it? Have you been in the Gila, on the land, on the river? Tell me about those things. You bet. So I first discovered the Gila in the mid-90s when I was an AmeriCorps participant that was assigned to the Mexican Wolf Recovery Project. And we were doing field research to establish that, you know, there were no wild wolves left in that country. And I just hadn't spent time in the Gila before. It's such a unique landscape. It's an interesting sort of combination of northern and southern um, influences and obviously, it's the southernmost snow-fed river system in North America. And I just found myself going back to the Gila time and again. I ran a outdoor program that's still around. It's called Cottonwood Gulch Expeditions. It was founded in the 1920s. And when I was running in the late 90s, early 2000, I really made a point of taking groups to the Gila and the Blue Range because it's a dynamic place and so unique. And I still go back to the Gila to sort of recharge my batteries. You know, my family and I, one of our, our most recent backpacks was um, in the heart of the Gila. Was that, what was that like looking for wolves? You know, it was really, uh, we were doing field research. So I was literally going mile by mile and howling and then recording the responses you know unfortunately we didn't get any wolf responses we got mexican spotted owls that would respond and coyotes and foxes and just about everything else but at the time there were no wolves on the ground no mexican wolves on the ground anywhere in north america and obviously that's changed since then you you have you have introduced and then reintroduced legislation for wild and scenic protections for the Gila, you initially did this with your your senatorial partner from New Mexico, Tom Udall, Senator Tom Udall, and now with uh, the new Senator Ben Ray Lujan, also from New Mexico. Why? Why are you interested in offering these bigger protections to the, the Membrace, the San Francisco, and the Gila Rivers? Because there are last best examples of a, a natural hydrologic system. There are so many places where these streams are a shadow of their former selves. And you see that with the Gila. If you go downstream in Arizona, after some of the big dams and diversions, that used to run year-round. And now it's just a, I mean, it's a ditch. And we still have this amazing river that sometimes it trickle, 
and sometimes it's a raging torrent. And it's that dynamism that has really maintained wildlife that doesn't live anywhere else, the amazing gallery riparian forest, you know, cottonwoods and the Arizona sycamores and the willows that are habitat for so many different species. And um, it's just a special place that deserves to stay that way. Did you did you initiate this wild and scenic package or did locals on the ground communicate with you first? Locals primarily, you know, there was a really active group in Silver City uh, that had been talking about this for a long time. And, you know, one of the things that brought it to a head was there have been a number of proposals over the years to either dam or dewater the Gila. And that happened again in the last decade. And it really got the local community upset. Uh, they began to organize. And rather than just fight that proposal, uh, I think they coalesced around the idea of doing something proactive to maintain the Gila as the wild dynamic system is. I understand that wild and scenic protection, it's not a small feat. It's not a small action. And what is it? What does it mean to you when a group of people or several groups of people come to you? How does that speak to you and, and call on you to engage in the process as well? Well, it's, it's such a heavy lift to pass major conservation legislation, especially in a modern, very divided Congress. And so what it says to me is that that community has skin in the game, that they have the kind of people on the ground that will see this through. And oftentimes these efforts take many years to, to come to fruition. But when you have that depth of support and knowledge in the local community, it, it means that eventually we're going to get there. And it gives me a lot more confidence because those folks are, are really the, the spark plug that makes it happen. In, in my time, in Silver City and at the Gila, I was able to interview a few folks who have really long relationships with the Gila. And I don't mean just their, them personally as a human, but their lineage. One gentleman, 15 generations. Another gentleman, I don't even know how many generations, but but a few hundred years. Um, another family could could talk about, you know, moms and, and grandparents. And in in my in my time with rivers my idea of wild and scenic has been that it's about recreation and just protecting land and this gila picture feels to me certainly about land and not so much recreation but about familial connections with the landscape and then familial connections with each other i'm curious yeah I, what you understand i would argue that. i would argue that wild and scenic is just as much about culture as anything and especially in a place that has um, not only modern history going back hundreds of years, but history with indigenous communities that goes back much further and really strong support from tribal constituents who want to maintain that cultural connection to place. And then climate change. How does climate change play into your decision and the crafting of the the layers of this legislation? I think it puts an exclamation point on everything because if we don't, the stresses on the system are even more acute now. And so if you don't have that natural hydrology, um, you, you have an even more fragile and oftentimes failing river system. And once again, if you just compare the upper Gila and the San Francisco to what the, that same watershed looks like downriver in Arizona, it, it's all the more acute how important it is to maintain the watershed, to maintain the natural recharge of the aquifer and the natural hydrological flow, or we're going to lose these things. And so in the face of climate change, it's really created an urgency for this legislation and I think that's something that's felt by a lot of folks in the community. And how, how do you see this tying into 
Oh, the bigger picture of water in the Southwest. It's been a big conversation this past summer because of the situations at Powell and Mead. Um, and I think there's a lot of ways to look at sure. that, but I'm just curious your thoughts on how this is a part of a bigger puzzle piece. This is the last undammed, undiverted portion of that Colorado River system. And to the extent that we can preserve its dynamic ability to reinvent itself, I think we'll have, you know, people will be able to see what's been lost in so many other places. And I think people will keep coming back to the Gila. It's different than the sort of, you know, rivers ditch that we see in too many places today. I recently saw where uh, President Biden was talking about integrating the knowledge of Native American citizens into how conservation and land preservation is now practiced moving forward. I haven't heard that from a federal administration before. I'm curious what you know about that, your thoughts on that, if that will be layered into this Gila package. You know, I, I think that is a reflection of a conversation and an effort that's been going on in New Mexico for decades that now has permeated and the conversation in Washington, D.C. And it's a reflection, for example, of having someone like Deb Holland at Interior and what impact that has on the president and the White House in acknowledging and understanding that 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 you can't effectively do conservation if you ignore communities and cultures that have been on that landscape from time immemorial. And, you know, we haven't always gotten it perfect in New Mexico. There's no question about that. But that is a conversation that's been going on in New Mexico for decades. And it's one of the reasons why we've been able to effectively move so much conservation forward in the state is because everyone is at the table. And that has made for some really dynamic and strong coalitions. All right. Senator Martin Heinrich, thank you for your time. It's been a real pleasure to talk with you. Oh, it's been great. Yeah. Thanks, right. Sam. You take care. See you. So all that, all of that detail about the legislation and the process, how a senator gets involved, all of this history. My favorite part of this episode has been the soft nature of humans who are with the Gila River, all of these rivers. So I want to close out with more of that topic. Once again, I am Riverside with Simone asking one last question. Tell me how folks use the Gila River. And, and I ask that because, you know, quite frankly, my experience with wild and scenic rivers has been rivers that people like to boat nah, in big rafts with oars. You know, there's, there's the fact that the Gila is a smaller river. It doesn't have a lot of volume. No. The, the deep part of my question is none of that matters. But I would like to understand how, how the river is used here by folks. Yeah, how the river here is used by folks, particularly Hispanics and Latinos, Mexicans, we use it as a way to connect with our family. We do. We do. Any major holiday where the people from the mines can have, you know, an extra day off, that's what we do. We go hang out at the grapevine, barbecue, sit around, tell stories, take our trailers out there. Our entire world revolves around our families, and it revolves around the table and food. Food. Food's a big thing. So that's what we do. We go out there, we make food, pull up our lawn chairs, and we sit in the river. This is a way to connect to our family, our people, our roots, our heritage. And I know it sounds kind of cheesy, but the reality is, is that that's what we do. Two, three, four, five generations are living in one household. And they're making food together. And they're making food together on the river. Half of the men and women in those families work in the mine five, six, seven days a week. So when they get their days off, let's get the fuck outside. Let's make some food. Hang out. And so I think when we think about legislation like Wild and Scenic, I think that's the reason why Hispanics and Latinos and Mexicans are so apt to support it. They recognize the importance of family, maintaining those experiences for their family. 
We hang on to every single person in our family in any way, shape, or form that we can. So we get outside and we cook food together and we, we drink beer and we tell stories and we fish and we put our laundries in the river just to get our feet wet. And so we recognize the importance of holding these places and keeping these places intact. And we recognize wild and scenic. We don't understand the words. We don't. But we understand the importance of making sure that our family can continue to do that. A Mogion Rim-sized thank you goes out to all of today's guests. Would you like more information about this Gila River Wild and Scenic Pursuit? The episode notes have several links to all of the organizations represented today and some not in the episode. There is also a link to the legislation and to maps showing where this land and riverscape is and the stretches of river covered in this legislation. If you have interest in supporting the legislation or speaking about any concerns you have with it, you can contact any of the organizations in the episode notes and you can contact your United States Senator from your home state. When this goes to a full vote on the Senate floor, they will each be able to vote on the bill. You can contact us anytime. Hello at theriverradius.com. We have one more episode for you this year. As 2021 closes out, the last episode for you is about a river that is reestablishing itself, a river that is reclaiming its waters, its riparian habitat, its side canyons. The Colorado River is redefining its riverbed in Cataract Canyon, where it was recently covered by Lake Powell. I was able to again travel there this October with several research scientists and journalists and river runners documenting the return. Join us for a sweet river story and a closure of the River Radius season of 2021. Thanks so much for joining the River Radius. Were you doing the howling yourself or did you have a recorded howl? No, we, we've, uh, we, howling ourselves and i can say that there's a a wide range of ability level among people to be able to actually do that effectively well you know i gotta ask can you give us a howl um i i might really um so i'm I'm in the heart building here it's a good place Uh, for it (laughs) all right let me let me give this a try oh How's that?